Hello there. I'm Brett McGarry. He's Greg Mackling. A day in the life. Beatles. An album you may have heard a little bit about today. Why so, aren't we hearing so much about this today, Greg? Yeah, 50th anniversary. Tristan Field Jones telling us about it in the news. And uh, every show this morning and probably this afternoon as well, uh, Jeff Courier sticks around to join us. And Jeff, the simple question really is why? Why is this such a big deal today? Because it, it might not even be the Beatles' best album. I know that's, that's always up for dispute. Uh, I think most Beatles' hardcore aficionados might point to the previous album, Revolver, as being a better album. I mean, that's always up for, you know, it's a subjective thing. But in its totality, this raised rock music from four or five guys in a studio going, she loves you, yeah, yeah, to something more. Lyrically, this was an album completely different, a huge departure. And and Rubber Soul and Revolver, the previous albums, kind of set the Beatles on that path. But they weren't writing, I want to hold your hand anymore. You know, there, I read the news today, oh boy, is a long cry from Love Me Do. So lyrically, they were talk, they were showing an awareness of the world around them. You know, these are guys now kind of getting into their late 20s, mid to late 20s. They, they were pretty worldly. They'd traveled the world. They'd seen an awful lot for guys that young and were talking about the things that they'd observed around the world. And, and of course, the drug influences were there. They, they came into play for sure. And... So that, that was part of it, just the lyrics themselves. It was the first album, by the way, that ever printed the lyrics on the back. Really? Yeah, nobody had ever printed the lyrics on an album before. That's fascinating. So, well, the lyrics weren't weren't worth printing for most of the if time, right? If you couldn't right? figure it out, turn it off. I mean, if, I mean, if it's not, if it if it wasn't Johnny Mercer or somebody like that back in the day, yeah. uh, most rock lyrics weren't really weren't worth printing on the back of an album cover. These were. This was poetry. So that that made a big difference, I think. And then... Uh, they recorded this whole thing using two four-track tape recorders. Just, I mean, that's mind-boggling. So for those of us that aren't musically inclined, I can kind of picture it, but maybe I'm picturing the wrong type, type yeah. of equipment. Maybe you can no, explain No, no, I'm that. talking about reel-to-reel tape decks here. Like you know, the, that some people had in their homes yeah, in the, in the yeah, 1960s I mean, yeah, and little, 70s? a little more sophisticated than but those. In but in general sense. But yeah, they were old reel-to-reel tape recorders. Not oh. like Nothing was digital. It was people sitting in front of microphones with acoustic guitars singing into them. And you mix it down and you put the, you, you get the, the rhythm guitar, bass, and drums recorded at one time. And they're all on one track. And then you start overdubbing things and you have to d- compress things into various tracks. It's, it's an incredible... Uh, engineering feat by Jeff Emmerich and production feat by George Martin. And they, the feel of the album, and I, I think, I, I agree with uh, John Einerson, who was with us uh, this week talking about this, the music historian, a great music historian we have here in Winnipeg, that if you lift individual tracks off that album, they, they're all pretty, pretty good. But this is an album, I think, that needs to be experienced in its totality because there's a kind of a consistent, even though there's a variety of music like there is on all Beatle albums, there's a kind of a consistent vibe or feel throughout this one. I think it's best enjoyed from start to finish. Is it like you're going on a, a journey with the Beatles yeah. when you put this on? Yeah, I think it is, you know, and you, because you're, and the the album art, the cover art, really plays into that mindset, this notion mm-hmm. that we're not the Beatles anymore, we're this other band. Mm-hmm. We're taking you someplace that, we're going someplace we haven't been before, and we're taking you along with us. And so that was different. The concept, uh, the idea of doing a bigger production, of experimenting more in the studio. uh, There was, you know, George Harrison's Indian song on this, which, you know, there were hints of that before that. But this was, you know, the longest song on the album, I think. And 
And then there was the, uh, I, I think this, this sort of feel that, uh, yeah, that, that this is now a piece of art that stands on its own. It's not just a dozen, 10 or 12 songs. This is a piece of art that, that needs to be experienced. Now, the mistake they made was not putting, the two first songs they recorded for that session were Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields, which was the single, the two-sided single. And, and the Be- the Beatles, and is this was this the case for all rock albums, that the singles did not go on the albums, or was it the Beatles that did It was certainly the Beatles, yeah, yeah, typically the Beatles, or the record company, I guess it would have been the record company's decision, that they didn't put the singles on the album. So, you know, if you wanted Rain or Paperback Writer or, you know, or Hello Goodbye or something like that, or Walrus, you had to go up and buy the single because they weren't on the album. And it was a mistake, I think, to not put those two songs on the album. They really belong there. You mentioned earlier that Paul McCartney changed the way that rock bass is, yeah. is uh, was it played or recorded? Yeah, what, what well, was... both. Yeah, both. He, he, uh, he had been using that Hofner bass, which everybody knows him for now. I think he's got, I think he's got three or four of them, actually. But that really light, it's almost like a balsa wood. It's so light, these things, which he continues to play to this day. But he was using a Rickenbacker bass on, on the Pepper Sessions. Those things weigh about 3,000 pounds. They're just, <laughs> they're brutal to carry around. You, you're, you need, I mean, you, your neck is sore after playing a gig with those. But they have a completely different sound, a much deeper uh, sound, uh, bassier, if you will. And they produce the bass to be heard more instead of just something. At, at one time, if you were a bass player and nobody noticed you were there, that meant you were good. Right? That was the idea of being a bass player. You're not supposed to be noticed. But on, on the Sgt. Pepper album, McCartney's bass player is noticeable and noteworthy on a number of the tracks. And so nobody had really quite done it like that before. Would this album been a luxury afforded to anyone else in terms of the production time required and everything that no. was done, the experimental elements? Would anybody else had free reign like that? Closest thing we got was uh, was Brian Wilson doing Pet Sounds for the Beach Boys, which which they did before Pepper, uh, which was actually to a great extent McCartney's inspiration for wanting to do that. He heard Pet Sounds and thought, "Wow, we got to do something to." To beat this. But that was done with m- predominantly studio musicians, Yes, right? it was. Yeah, the, the Beach Boys themselves virtually didn't play on that album. It was but all session the, people. The, the, the Wrecking Crew, if you want to watch yeah. the movie about the behind the scenes of the yeah. session players that made the Beach yeah. Boys who they were, in my opinion. But that's a topic of conversation yeah. for another day. Yeah, but uh, but up until then, nobody would really given. And, and, of course, by this time, with the, with the massive success, and they weren't on the road anymore, that... If the Beatles needed to take five months to do an album, they were given five months. But I think the I think the people at Capitol and EMI were probably getting a little antsy because nobody had ever taken five months to do an album before. It's unheard of to take that long. Remember, their first album was done in a day. Pardon me. The, the first Beatles album was recorded in one day. Is that when you just would they'd go in play and you'd hit record and Pretty that's much, that? Yeah, because they uh, there was almost no overdubbing and. They would play their their repertoire, their, their club. A lot of it, some of the their own songs. I think "Love Me Do" and "Please Please Me." A couple of those might have been on it. Uh, the rest of it was, uh, or a lot of it was just their regular nightclub repertoire. So they played these songs ten thousand times. They knew how to play them, but they went in and they did the whole thing in one day. So the last track they're going to do is "Twist and Shout." Now they've been in the studio for twelve or fourteen hours or whatever, and Lennon's got a cold. You can hear it on the first album where he's really, you can tell he's got a cold that day, but he had to do it anyway. So they get to Twist and Shout, and he says, look, guys, we got to do this in one take because I can't sing it twice. 
And so the Beatles recording of Twist and Shout, which is one of the iconic rock recordings, still to this day, it stands up. It's one of those covers that's better than the original, better than the Isley Brothers original. Right. Everybody loves Twist and Shout to this day. One take, Lennon barely getting there at the end of the thing. And yet there it stands up as this amazing record. I'm amazed constantly that when we hear the stories behind these songs, how often, yeah, I wrote that one in 12 minutes, <laughs> wrote it on the back of a paper bag, yeah. uh, wasn't quite sure where we were going with that. You know, you, you hear these stories and uh, that's one that I'd not heard before, Jeff. Yeah. I, I, always great to get your insight on these things. You should have a radio show. <laughs> I'll consider it. Yeah. I'll apply somewhere. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate it, my friend. Jeff Courier, you can hear him, of course, daily from 10 till 1, leading up to Mac. And McGarry. He is a vault of knowledge. The vault is gigantic. The vault of knowledge uh, as it pertains to music and so many other things. We appreciate him and we appreciate his time this afternoon. After your forecast, we're going to tell you about someone, a Manitoban, who played on Sergeant Pepper. That story coming up next. Brett McGarry with Greg Mackling on 680 CJOB. We are talking about Sergeant Pepper, 50th anniversary, such an influential piece of music history. And Greg, you spoke with somebody today. Why don't you just tell us quickly who he is, and then we will launch into the the feature package that uh, we've put together here. William Gordon was a professor of music at the University of Brandon. He moved to Brandon uh, from Great Britain uh, many years ago. And our colleague, Kim Lawson, her mom and dad actually knew and know Professor Gordon quite well. And so this morning when I got in, Kim shared the story. You may want to get in touch with Professor Gordon. He's got a great story about being on Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album. Why don't you give him a call? Do you have his number? No, but he's in the book. Sure enough, made a call. His wife picked up the phone. He got on the line and... Well, we just started chatting. Celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Beatles. What an album that a lot of people consider one of the greatest albums of all time for its experimental factor and the the different types of music. And, uh, William, you played, well, what instrument did you play and on what track? Well, I I could remember the, it's probably the title track I think we did. Um, My instrument is French horn, and simply um, my teacher at that time, um, Douglas Moore, had been booked to play a couple of freelance jobs, and... um, he had overbooked himself, he double booked himself essentially, and he offered me this one, nice if I would substitute for him, which I agreed to do. And so I just went and played the session. It was not advertised as anything at all, um, just a recording session. And so I went and played, and then I found out later, and he found out later, that um, um, you know it happened to be that particular. Um, Beatles recording session. He did the other, all of the other ones that were associated with that album. So where were you studying? At the Royal College of Music in London, England. At the time, do you realize that it's for the Beatles or even necessarily what the no, track is? We didn't know anything at all about it. It was just be there at 10 o'clock or whatever it was and be ready to play. 
and that was it. <laughs> so when was it that you finally realized what you'd been involved with? Not until he came out. And did you hear it, or somebody let you know, or... And even then, it was probably a year before I realized exactly what had been going on. So do you you have a a special copy of this album somewhere in your house, or is it just just a great story? I have a copy in my house somewhere. I have no idea where at the moment, but I do have a copy. Now, you mentioned in our pre-interview that you were paid very well. How much were you paid for that? I have no idea. It was triple rate, whatever the rate was then, and it was a triple rate job. Well, I guess that uh, helped out at the time. So what brought you to Brandon University? Um, I eventually emigrated from... um, I was principal horn of the um, Ulster Orchestra in Belfast, and then I decided to uh, investigate Canadian opportunities. I came to Winnipeg. And then I was recruited uh, to come to Brandon and essentially spent all my career time in Brandon. Well, it's actually. I enjoyed it very much. Uh, it's a wonderful place. The musical prowess of the school there is uh, very well known. So that's as, as close as you got to the Beatles. What about some other famous people? Have you had other brushes or more direct encounters with big name musical talent? Not really. I did a very good Smarties commercial a long time ago. Tell us about for a that. While. Well, it was just um, uh, here again. It was uh, this one. We had the uh, the film of the actual commercial had been shot and so they were, they were showing it to us as we recorded the music and I had to do a very long glissando from a very high note to a very low note as the Smarties came out of the Smarty tube <laughs> and it took me four or five times to get that right until they were happy with it and that too was on the French horn that was on the French horn yes uh, fabulous well this is a nice remembrance uh, we appreciate you sharing it with us on this special anniversary in in music history so much appreciated Mr. Gordon not at all you're very welcome bye 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 love the modesty yeah oh yeah no big deal so Manitoban yeah Played the French horn. <laughs> what song? I'm, I think it was the title song. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> yeah, doesn't remember what he got paid. Just no. that it was that it went very well. Now that's a great story. That's a great story. Thank you very much to uh, Professor William Gordon. He's now retired Brandon University music teacher. He's influenced an awful lot of people over the years, and we appreciate him sharing the story with us today. And the Beatles. I mean. I like to joke with one of our colleagues about he has a tendency to, to like older music and I like to, to make fun of him for that. Just It's just playful teasing. There's no denying the Beatles' influence. The, and the, the, the fact that they continue to affect new generations of people is just such an indication of their, their staying power. And I, I, I hope that as the years go on that they don't end up, their music is not lost to the sands of time. Yeah, so far there's no sign of that happening. No, in fact, it's interesting with anniversaries like this, I think it's reintroduced to a whole other generation of music. In fact, I learned something today about Ringo Starr that I didn't know, 
And that was the fact I knew he was left-handed, but I had never thought about the fact that he played a right-handed drum kit. And so his emphasis on certain parts of the kit would be different than someone who is right-handed playing on a right-handed kit. And Jeff explained it to me that he'd be a split second behind certain things because of his prominent or dominant hand being the left one and the kit setup. Oh, and so weird. that made it very unique and very difficult to replicate. So that, that was fascinating to learn today. That's, <laughs> you're right, he is The truly, little nuances, right? He truly is a volcano of musical knowledge. So Sergeant Pepper turns 50. William P. Gordon, thank you very much for your time. Still to come this afternoon on Mackley and McGarry, we have prizes to give away. We are not going to do that just yet. We are going to wait until later this afternoon to give away another pair of tickets to Cirque du Soleil. Curios, Cabinet of Curiosities as well. Carolyn Clausen joins us at 2.30 to talk about A, the message and how it can be lost in tone, and B, apologies and how do you apologize for something when you know you when you know you're screwed up and i'm looking forward to this you're going to review wonder woman you were there last night i know a lot of people anxious about this one and will not decide whether or not they're going to see a movie until one of the couch potatoes gives <laughs> his stamp of approval we'll talk about that later on this afternoon as well it's 134 Thursday afternoon, glorious day. Thanks for spending some time with us, whether it's work or maybe you're on the road. The headline is this, common acne drug could treat MS, University of Calgary Research Shows. Let's share with you the audio of a story from Global News in Calgary about how this drug could be life-changing for the thousands of Canadians who have MS. Jillian was just 27 years old when she began experiencing symptoms of multiple sclerosis. I woke up one morning and I had like numbness and tingling in my hand. When it was fully progressed, I had um, that feeling of numbness in 50% of my body, the left side of my body from my neck down. An MRI revealed Jillian had lesions on her brain and spinal cord, indicating she was likely developing MS. That's when her doctor told her about a clinical trial involving a popular acne medication called minocycline. Minocycline, although used as an acne medication, has a number of other effects as well. We discovered some 18 years ago that it affects the immune system in ways that we thought would be of use in multiple sclerosis. After testing the drug on 142 people across 12 Canadian cities, researchers found patients who took minocycline were 45% less likely to experience any more symptoms of MS following their first attack. The medication is effective in preventing further disease activity. Unlike many other MS medications currently in use, minocycline costs just dollars a day and can be used by patients for years at a time with few side effects. Based on these findings, the drug is now being used to treat MS patients across Canada. After the trial, Jillian remained on minocycline for six and a half years. Today, she remains symptom-free. Perfectly healthy. <laughs> Heather Yurks West, Global News. Obviously, this is very exciting news for those with MS. Dr. Michael Schubert joins me now, or joins us. Sorry, Brett. Brett McGarry, Greg Mackling with you here on Mackling and McGarry. And uh, Dr. Schubert, thanks for taking some time with us. How common is it that you're researching a medicine, a drug, or a procedure and realize, geez, this might work just as well or better for some other ailment? 
Hey, gentlemen, it's uh, nice to talk to you both. It's uh, it's actually surprisingly common. The you know the body is a remarkably complex machine, and quite often we think we're targeting one thing, and it turns out that what we're manipulating has other roles to play in other tissues, and so you end up finding out that this has. Uh, a secondary effect. Sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative. That's one of the reasons we sometimes get side effects because we're hitting something that we didn't anticipate. And that's why it's critical to do you know, clinical trials like the one in, in question here to show that it's safe, that it's effective, that it does its job. And if there are side effects, that they're minimal, which is exactly the case here. Uh, so you set out to look at it's one thing, and you end up in a completely different area sometimes, and and that's one of the things that makes science really exciting, is uh, you don't know necessarily where it's going to end up, and sometimes you take a drug off the shelf that has been around for many years, such as uh, minocycline here, and uh, and you find that it's got another completely different role to play that we had not originally anticipated. Dr. Michael Schubert joins us, as I said, he's principal investigator. Molecular Pathophysiology at the Institute of Cardiovascular Sciences, Albrechtson Research Center, St. Boniface Hospital. And Dr. Schubert, maybe before we carry on here, for those who aren't, because I, I, I know I'm myself, I sometimes can't keep track of all of the bad things that happen to people. Can you just clarify exactly what is multiple sclerosis? So multiple sclerosis occurs um, when you have a, how should I put it, when, when your body starts to attack the lining of some of your nerves, uh, this, this sheath of lining called myelin that prevents uh, signals from those nerves to sort of from being, um, from it being able to trigger things uh, in the wrong order that they're supposed to. So when this sheath is, is, is broken down, uh, those nerves start to react with things around them in ways that they shouldn't, and you start getting the symptoms of the disease. And it progresses at different rates in different individuals, um, but there certainly is a, an immune component to this and an inflammatory component as well. One of the ways this drug is believed to be working is by reducing the inflammatory component. So your body normally has, a, has, has inflammation as, a, as a, a method to attack incoming invaders such as bacteria or viruses, and it's trying to fight things off by, by mounting an inflammatory attack, but sometimes those attacks are misguided, so we start attacking proteins in our own bodies that aren't supposed to be attacked, and that's one of the things that can underlie multiple sclerosis. Now, one of your principal focuses of research has to do with fibrosis of the heart, and that's a constriction in the workings of the heart. Maybe you could talk about that specific research and where it's led to in terms of something completely different than an ailment of the heart. Well, yeah, we have been looking at um, at this condition called cardiac fibrosis for a number of years now. It is a situation that occurs after heart attack in response to high blood pressure with natural aging. Basically, if you damage the heart in some way, uh, a number of people are going to go on to develop cardiac fibrosis, which stiffens the heart. It causes it to pump um, less efficiently. It, it, it takes a lot more energy to pump. It also is harder for the heart to relax and refill, and it can contribute to arrhythmias as well because it starts to change the electrical conductivity of the cells of the heart. And, and all these things are independently bad. They make a, a bad situation much worse if you start to develop this fibrosis, and yet we have no drugs to treat it. So we're trying to identify something that will block this process. We think we found something that will be very effective. And now as we you know, kind of take a bigger picture on this and start to involve other collaborators in other fields, we realize that the target we're looking at might actually be beneficial in fibrosis in other tissues as well. And in fact, one of the really interesting things is, is the, the target we're looking at, it's a protein called sclerosis, seems to actually have a beneficial effect in things like tendon healing. So if you, if you tear your rotator cuff, 
uh, turns out scleraxis looks like it is turned on and helps to speed the healing of that tendon. If you add more scleraxis to the site of healing, you actually improve the quality of healing. So in some cases, you want to stop its effect, such as in fibrosis. In other cases, you might want to promote it to in, in, increase wound healing. And so this is a completely different area. You would never think that the heart and tendons, which look different, behave different, would have any kind of connection. But it turns out some of the molecular signaling pathways that underscore their individual roles are actually common to one another. The drug that we're talking about here, minocycline, how effective is it for what it is meant to be used for, which is acne? Well, the reality is it's been used for many, many years. It's, it was initially discovered as, uh, as an antibiotic, which is why it's used for acne. It, it helps uh, kill some of the bacteria that are involved in a number of acne patients. And it's been around 40 or 50 years. It was discovered along with a whole class of other drugs called the tetracy- uh, tetracyclines. And, uh, and so it's, it's well known. It's well established. We know a lot about how safe and effective it is. And, um, and it turns out, though, that for about uh, 15, 20 years, maybe even a little longer than that, um, folks have started to look into what other roles it might have. Uh, one thing that surprisingly crosses over with some of the stuff I do is it, it um, seems to target a class of uh, proteins called metalloproteinases. It's a big mouthful, but basically these are proteins whose job is to chew up and break down other proteins, which can be a good thing, it can be an important thing, but can also be bad if that happens to the wrong situation. And that may be part of the effect that we're seeing here with multiple sclerosis, that some of these metalloproteinases may be going out and helping to break down the myelin sheath, and that this drug may be preventing that from occurring. Homegrown. There's actually multiple ways that it might be having a role in this disease. Sorry, Michael. I, I, you and I have done so many interviews together, I thought I'd uh, picked up on your cadence there. I jumped in. I apologize. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Michael Schubert uh, joins us. He's Principal Investigator Molecular Pathophysiology at the Institute of Cardiovascular Sciences at uh, Albrechtson Research Center, St. Boniface Hospital. And going back to November of 2014, Dr. Murad, uh, Dr. Fareed Murad, who is Nobel Laureate, is the creator, essentially, of Viagra. And I got to interview him. I don't know if you got to see his presentation, uh, Mike, but the idea that Viagra basically sat on his shelf for more than a decade before he realized what it could do and the implications that it could have in terms of erectile dysfunction is legendary within the medical community. Yeah, that is probably the... um the, the happiest case of a side effect turning into uh, a treatable condition um, in, in possibly in medical history, because that's really what it was seen as, was the, the effect it had was noted as a side effect in patients who were being given, uh, being given the drug in order to treat something related to their circulatory system. Uh, this side effect was noted. Uh, it was kind of shelved for a while until someone realized there might be an actually, uh, you know, an incredible market for this because there, there are folks where this is, a, this is a consideration that has no treatment at the time. There was nothing that could really be done. And suddenly it turned around and its primary uh, role was, was kind of put to the background because it had this, this tremendous effect. It's ironic, a side effect turns into the primary purpose for for the medication. So talk about the science. Is this something that we're going to see or or has it been commonplace where researchers and uh, practitioners are looking at medicines that we've been using in one way and maybe repurposing them and finding alternate uses for them? Is this something we're going to see a lot more of? Oh, it's been happening for a long time. A, a good example would be thalidomide, for example, which, you know, we know the story of thalidomide and, and the fact that it can cause birth defects in, 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 uh, in pregnant women. Um, 
but the original reason it was it was given was often for uh, mood issues and things like that. But we've realized that it also has an effect in certain cancers, and that might be very effective there. And so, if you know the cautions of where you should not be using it, you can perhaps redirect it and use it actually very beneficially for a a particular subgroup of patients. And so this is something that we've known about for very many years. Sometimes drugs come along and... um, and, and they are, it, someone discovers that there's a secondary effect that they have that no one had noticed before. And sometimes that secondary effect is quite important, as, as we're seeing in this uh, example today. Mm. I should also point out that this, this is um, you know, a long-term study. So the, the clinical trial in question here that's being reported, they've been doing it since 2008, 2009. But in fact, the earliest inkling that this might be effective is already going back to the late 90s, early 2000s. And so we had talked, you know, in the past about the the drug discovery pipeline and how long it is. It really does take many years to get from the glimmer of an idea to actually delivering something that can be used as a treatment. And this is a case in point. We're we're seeing the net result of a a long-term study that has occurred over approximately 20 years. Well, you're on the subject of drugs that end up having these sort of unexpected positive side effects, I think, of something like Zyban, which I believe was meant to be an antidepressant, and then it ended up being uh, an anti or a quit smoking drug. Yeah, and so there's, you know, there, there are a number of drugs that are, that are like that, where we, we start with them in one direction, and we sometimes realize there's something, um, you know, a, a better effect of them in another direction. And so that's, uh, that's not an uncommon theme. And quite often, um, people are now starting to dust off older medications and seeing if there's ways we can re- redirect them to other things. The reason why that's a popular approach is because in most cases, these older medications we've known about for a very long time. So the, the, the safety trials have already been done. We've already given them to large numbers of people. We know what kind of effects they're going to have in terms of are they going to be tolerated by people? If there's any kind of side effects, how bad are they? How minimal are they? Uh, we've gotten through all that. And so if we find a new role for a drug to play that is different from the one it was originally approved for, we don't have to go back through all those hoops to look at the safety again. It's already been demonstrated. Fascinating stuff, uh, Dr. Michael Schubert. Thank you for your time as always, my friend. Uh, we appreciate your insight and the fact that you're available to us is uh, such a bonus and a blessing. Appreciate it. My pleasure, gentlemen. Have a great afternoon. We appreciate it very much, Dr. Michael Schubert. By the way, he listens to our show pretty much every day. Oh. So we're in the lab with him. He brought the lab to us this afternoon. Principal Investigator, Molecular Pathophysiology, Institute of Cardiovascular Sciences, Albrechtson Research Center, St. Boniface Hospital, graduate of Garden City Collegiate. I give him a hard time that he's from Sisler, and of course, Sisler and Garden City are our rivals. So uh, shout out to uh, Garden City Collegiate. Home of Dr. Michael Schubert. Well, hang on, what's the, the, the connection with, you said he's from, he graduated Garden from City. City. Yeah, but I, I tease him. I say, oh, Sisler rules, or that gets his back up. It says, are you, well, you're. I'm uh, from Daniel Mack. Long okay. story. It's okay. just a, it's just a rivalry thing. Dr. Uh, Davinder Jassel, who also works at uh, St. B, is a Sisler grad. So oh. there's a little bit of competition and jovial back and forth between the three of us. So it's good stuff. Okay, I was because I know you've lived here and you've lived there, and oh, I good. thought maybe you had a Sisler connection that no, I didn't know no, about. No, no, no Sisler connection. Just that they used to beat us at everything, track and field and football in particular. <laughs> okay, so the rivalry is in jest with uh, Garden City. Yeah, it, uh, no, not in any way. <laughs> 
septic. I just opened an old wound. It's all good, Brett McGarry. Forecast coming up next. It's Brett McGarry with Greg Mackling on 680 CJO Beach. It's a couple of uh, breaking situations, and one of them happened a few moments ago uh, on Route 90. There's a crash in the left lane on the St. James Bridge heading northbound. Emergency crews are on scene. That was as of about 10 minutes ago. Crash in the left lane on the St. James Bridge heading northbound. Also, uh, something out of Manila in the Philippines. Witnesses say gunshots and explosions have been heard at a mall, casino, and hotel complex near Manila's International Airport in the Philippine capital. Philippine police rushed to the resort's World Manila Complex early Today, after gunshots rang out at the complex, where smoke began billowing from the upper floor of the building, Philippine policemen have not given details about the incident, but they have begun cordoning off the area near the International Airport. So we'll keep an eye on that situation as it progresses throughout the afternoon. Donald Trump anticipated, expected to announce that the United States withdrawing from the Paris Accord, the climate deal that has over 200 signatories, including Canada, uh, that expected to be official in the next few minutes. I think his press conference is scheduled for for 3 o'clock in the Rose Garden, the White House, uh, Eastern Time. So that's coming up in just a few minutes. Uh, that will be, is, it's anticipated that that will be made official. We've got just a couple minutes left in the hour. We should do something a little bit lighter, lighter tone here. We haven't had much fun in this first hour, although we did talk about the Beatles for a little bit. Uh, Mr. Met. Forbes magazine calls him the most famous sports mascot in North America. I don't know if I buy that, but if the Forbes uh, says it, I'll go along with it. Mr. Uh, Met? Mr. Met. Yeah, Mm. he's a guy in a, basically in a Mets baseball uniform with a great big baseball head. Yeah. It's not super inventive in any way, shape or form, Uh, but. Yeah, he's uh, like number one on Forbes' list. Well, one of the individuals who, there's a rotating cast of individuals who put on this getup and entertain people at New York Mets games. Well, a couple nights ago, flipped the bird, got caught on camera. Mm-hmm. Well, here's the story. Come on and meet the Mets. Meet the Mets. Jennifer Smith, who runs Avant Garb, an Indianapolis studio that designs and builds mascot costumes, was heartsick to hear about Mr. Matt, who she considers a classy guy. It's Mr. Matt. It's Mr. It's not like, you know, Joey Matt. This is Mr. Matt. Mets say they have fired the person who was inside the costume with the big baseball head after Mr. Matt was recorded in a now much shared video making an obscene gesture at a fan. Smith says that's one of the reasons why you give mascots only four fingers, though there's little mistaking the gesture. The team is not saying who in the rotating cast of Mr. Metz was inside at the time. Warren Levinson, New York. Thank you, Warren Levinson. That was interesting to note that that's one of the reasons why you give a mascot four fingers. I'm just looking at the video now. Oh, yeah, he's walking down. So imagine if you're sitting in the stands and Mr. Met is sort of walking in a concourse beside you, just this little concrete kind of hallway going somewhere underneath into the the catacombs of the stadium. And he turns around and he flips the bird as he's walking away. And he's fired? Really? Come on. Give the poor guy a break. Those mascots, I bet you, take so much abuse. (laughs) can only imagine the amount of abuse they take. Uh, the Green Drop was at one of the events I was at a few weeks ago, and uh, the Green Drop 
is always getting hammered on by Buzz and Boomer at yeah. the Blue Bomber games. <laughs> so uh, that is by design, but I can only imagine behind the scenes they do take a quite a bit of a beating. We're going to talk about the Winnipeg walk to fight arthritis and meet the Hero family uh, in studio with us following information. Brett McGarry's got your global news and weather coming up at the top of the hour. It's Mackling McGarry. And just before the news, I want to quickly tell you that uh, we have a traffic tip crash southbound Pemina near Stafford emergency crews are on scene traffic is backing up again crash at southbound Pemina near Stafford emergency crews on scene any excuse to play the Foo Fighters any excuse to play walk my favorite song by the Foo Fighters. It's very apropos for our next segment. We're visiting with part of Team Matthew. And Matthew, I got to ask you, I asked you how to pronounce one word, but I didn't ask you how to pronounce your last name. Um, you pronounce it Stepanovic. Stepanovic? Yeah. How'd I do? Okay? Yeah, pretty good. Ma- pretty good. He's going to be a tough nut to crack here, I think, Brett. <laughs> Greg Mackling, <laughs> Brett McGarry with you through until 4 o'clock. We're talking about... The uh, the walk to fight arthritis, and it takes place on Sunday. Thousands of Canadians will walk to raise funds for arthritis. And Winnipeg is one of over 30 communities to host the 2017 Walk to Far- Fight Arthritis. And our hero family, the Stepanovics? Stepanovics. Stepanovics. Gosh, I'll get it before you go. Our Wawanisa Winnipeg Walk to Fight Arthritis Hero family, at least two of them are here. My new friend Matthew, along with his mom, Anna. Welcome to 680 CJOB. Thank you, Greg. And Tanya is here from the from the Arthritis Society, Prairie Division, Community Engagement and Marketing Coordinator. And Tanya, it's always nice to see you. Thanks for having us. You want to take a shot at her last name? Nope, not going anywhere near that. Miss <laughs> Eggers? You got it. Well, see, you got it. That's why you're the news guy, and I'm just the hanger-on here on Mackling and McGarry. So, uh, Matthew, you were diagnosed with something called polyarticular. I did okay there. Juvenile yep. idiopathic yep. arthritis at 18 months old. Matthew has experienced the pain of arthritis in nearly every joint in his body and has suffered from inflammation of the eyes since age four. And Matthew, it says here, you have never experienced remission and you continue to fight daily against the debilitating disease with help of his family, friends, and healthcare team. And Matthew, thank you for doing this. And I got to tell you, when I first met you, never know you were dealing with anything. You carry yourself in an outstanding fashion. So first of all, let me shake your hand for that. Good on you. So what are you dealing with today? You got any pain today, discomfort, or are you having a good day today? Uh I am having a good day today. I just started something new, and it's really helping with me. A new medication? Yeah, a new medication. Well, that's yeah. good to hear. But when you're having a bad day, what what hurts? What do you what do you deal with? Well, mostly the joints that hurt for me are my fingers, my wrists, my knees, and my hips. Those are the joints that bother me the most. So when I do have flares, it's um, it's usually hard for me to walk to hold on to things because my fingers are sore and just move around in general. I might not have full range of my joints. How do the other, like how do your your fellow students uh, treat you? Do they treat you any differently? 
uh, no, they don't treat me any differently. They treat me just like they would treat anyone else at the school, but they do help me. That's good to hear. Now you're telling me you were refereeing soccer up until a week or so ago and you play on the basketball team. So you stay super active. Yeah. Um, the, the arthritis, it doesn't limit me in any way unless I'm having a flare. But otherwise, I participate in all of the sports. And if I am having a flare, then I will sit out of those sports. What about your eyes? You know, you're 13 years old. You got a nice set of glasses there. I think I was 13 when I got my first set of glasses. But uh, I, I am not familiar with uh, this inflammation of the eyes. Uh, uvitis? Is that what it is? Uh, uveitis. Uveitis. I see. I don't pronounce everything right there, Greg, so it's okay. Uveitis. So what does that feel like? Um, it doesn't feel like anything. However, so my eye pressure, it changes. And like that is not good for your eye. It's sort of like in a balloon. You can't add too much air to the balloon because then it will pop. Not literally, but it will pop. And if you don't add enough, then it won't be a balloon. It'll just sort of be squishy. So you like you need your pressure right. And that's what's affecting me is my pressure is usually too high. And is it the pressure in your eyeball within the socket or yeah. the eyeball itself? How does that work, Mom? Well... Uh, it's the pressure of the um, the fluid against the uh, the wall of the eye, the inside of the eye. Uh, so what usually happens is either um, because of the inflammation, there's not adequate drainage. And I'm sorry if there are any ophthalmologists and <laughs> sorry if I'm going to explain this exactly right. But um, what that causes is bu- uh, built up pressure in the eye, which can cause pressure on the optic nerve, which can lead to blindness. So that is one of the, the biggest uh, risks for having glaucoma. Do you um, get along with your ophthalmologist? Uh, yes, I do. I'm going to guess who your ophthalmologist is. Is he a cool guy? Yes. Has he got a bit of an accent? Yes. Is it Dr. Clark? Yes, it is. He is one of the best. Yeah, he's pretty he awesome. He is a super duper guy. So you are in really, really good hands with yeah. Dr. Clark. How often do you have to go and see Dr. Clark? Um, well, it really depends. If my pressure is out of control, then I will have to see him more often. But if if it's, like, stable and it's good, it might be, like, every month. And if not, it could be more than once a week. So you said that you can't feel it. So how do you know when your pressure is out of control? Um, well, when I go to the doctors, um, Dr. Clark, he checks my eye pressure using, like, a machine. Uh-huh. So he checks the pressure and it'll say what your my pressure is. Can I just answer that question? Yeah. Sure. Um, uveitis and glaucoma, they're both silent diseases in, in kids. So there are no symptoms per se. You really do need to be checked regularly by your ophthalmologist. And that's how they know. So Matthew might not have any symptoms whatsoever. It's only by doing an exam of the eye uh, with the, you know, the special equipment that, that uh, they use that he can actually see whether there's inflammation in there or by testing the pressure if the, the pressure is high or, or low. In his case, it would be high usually. So, Tanya, Dr. Clark's a great example of the outstanding specialists that we have in our province. We have specialists for all sorts of uh, different ailments. But I also know that Dr. Clark is very busy because he's one, I think, of just two ophthalmologists that that deal with kids in the province. And so his workload, two or three, well, okay, well, my son used to see Dr. Clark on a regular basis, and I think it was two at the time. And so when you think about the resources required, this is this is why we need to uh, bring attention to things like what Matthew is dealing with. 
Absolutely. And when you think about um, the, the main type of specialist that kids with arthritis need, which is a, a pediatric rheumatologist, for many, many years, we only had one in this province. And we know that for every 1,000 kids, between three and four of them in Manitoba have juvenile arthritis. And we had only one pediatric rheumatologist for many years. We now have two, uh, plus a pediatrician who is trained to to work with some of the less serious cases. So just in the last five years, uh, we've seen you know, big advancements in access to care for kids, and that's super important. This is the eighth annual walk to fight arthritis coming up uh, Sunday, June 4th. Is it too late to take part in it? No way! Come on down! <laughs> We'd love to see you. Uh, we do have one deadline looming up uh, tonight at 10.59pm is when online registration is is done but people can still come the day of. We're also doing a, an early bird sign-in tomorrow night from 5 to 8pm at the running room at Grant and Keniston. So you can come in person and sign up that way. Uh, Online is still open for donations if people want to give, so they want to support Team Matthew, you you can do that. But to register for the walk itself, online ends tonight. You mentioned Grant. I actually should mention Grant as well. There's been a crash eastbound Grant just before Waverly, so it's proving to be a bad afternoon so far for crashes. Why don't we pause our conversation, Greg? Uh, we're talking about the Walk to Fight Arthritis, the 8th Annual Walk, happening this Sunday, June 4th, Assiniboine Park, and registration is just outside the Lyric Theatre at 55 Pavilion Crescent. We are joined by Matthew Stepanovic. He's 13 years old. He has juvenile arthritis. His mother, Anna, is here. And Tanya Masegers is here from Arthritis Society. And your forecast is coming up next. Brett McGarry with Greg Mackling. We are talking about the 8th Annual Walk to Fight Arthritis, which will unfold in over 30 communities across Canada, including Winnipeg which is hosting the Wabanisa Insurance Walk to Fight Arthritis. It's happening this Sunday, June 4th, Assiniboine Park. We are joined in studio by Matthew Stepanovic, who is 13 years old. He has polyarticular juvenile idiopathic arthritis. We have his mother, Anna, in studio with us, and Tanya Masegers, who is here with the Arthritis Society. And uh, Matthew, Greg commented uh, while we went to commercials that... You're an old pro. I understand you've all you've done other live interviews with our friends from Global TV. Yep, I have done one live interview, uh, one commercial, and I have I will have another interview that will be broadcasted sometime soon. That's fantastic, Anna. Why is it important? You know, obviously Matthew can take care of himself in terms of answering our questions and interacting with us. And so, and Matthew, I'm not trying to talk about you like you're not in the room. But why is it important that you're out sharing the story, Anna, and, and so forthright with what you're dealing with? I think it's important for us um, to share a story because we are just one of many families who have to deal with uh, arthritis uh, in in uh, Manitoba. Um, I don't think that people quite realize the impact that arthritis can have on a family because as you said earlier, Matthew kind of looks just like a regular kid. He doesn't, he, you know, he walks okay. He, uh, he carries himself very well. He does well in school, participates as he fully would, as any other child fully would. Uh, however, there are things that kind of go on to go on behind, behind the scenes to, to ensure that this happens, uh, 
numerous medications that he has to take, doctor's appointments, and then the constant idea of, of monitoring and being watchful for symptoms or flares or things like that. I think that's, that's what people might not understand. Maybe those that are, are dealing with chronic illness have a better understanding of, of that. But I think that's why it's important to get that message across. You mentioned that he's uh, on some new medication. What, what is this medication and how is it different from what he's done in the past? Well, Matthew has, since his early uh, days of diagnosis, has always been on medication and certainly been on the first-line medications, sulfasalazine, methotrexate, which he's still on. But then came, uh, came along a new line of medications called biologics. And Matthew has pretty much been on every biologic that is indicated for children with arthritis since about the age of two and a half. The, the thing with biologics is sometimes they have a, a, a period of effectiveness and then they stop working. So right now, Matthew is something called Symponi. That's the generic name. Golimumab is the, um, is the kind of... Um, Sorry. The trade name. The trade name. Yeah. I think I've got that mixed up, actually. Uh, okay. Trade trade name is Symphony. Galimibad is the generic name. And uh, this is something that seems to be working for him right now. Mm-hmm. Only time will tell. He's also on a lot of other medications that increase his risk for infections. So with a child like Matthew, even though he might look okay, the thing that we need to be aware of is that uh, simple things like a common cold, strep throat, could put him at a great risk for infection because he's also on prednisone, he's on methotrexate, he's on this symponi, which all compromised his immune system greatly. So a couple of years ago, he acquired strep throat through probably just a very simple uh, contact through maybe school or maybe friend or, or whatever it was. So for more, most children, this is fine. They you know go to the doctor, uh, you get your course of antibiotics, and then within about a week or two, you're, you're uh, ready to go. But what this meant for Matthew is that he had to stop all of his other medications because of the risk for developing severe systemic infections. Oh, boy. So this catapulted Matthew into probably the worst flare that I've ever seen him in, worst flare of his life. So what had happened is uh, his joints really started to flare again, so much uh, to the point that he couldn't even move in bed while he was sleeping. So, you know, he needed help turning, positioning, Getting up in the morning probably took about, you know, to get him moving and, and ready for school. It took several hours yeah, by the time we... Four hours? Yeah, yeah. well, two, three hours, yeah. yeah. By the time we started moving his joints, kind of got him into a bath or shower just to loosen things up, did some exercises. So it was it was really, um, it's a really, it was a really difficult time. I suspect that others also have gone through something similar. And, you know, fortunately, what we, what we try to do is we really try to get a handle on the medication. We try to make sure that he's on something that will, will increase his mobility, uh, help him move, um, and just kind of maintain that normalcy that that kids should be having. And I don't want to talk like you're not in the room, but I'm going to ask Tanya. Of course, we know that Anna's got some medical background and uh, uh, through the work that she does uh, as a nursing instructor. So that is probably pretty helpful, I imagine, Anna, in terms of, of your work, and because this is really a part-time, if not a full-time job, uh, to, to make sure that Matthew is as healthy as he can be. Tanya, not everyone who's dealing with this has that benefit of, of having a, a, a pseudo-professional caregiver in the family. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Um, some kids are fortunate. We, we have an, another young person, Colin Johnson. His mom is a nurse. 
So she was able to recognize the signs and symptoms and get him, you know, diagnosed uh, fair, fairly quickly and get him treated quickly. But no, not a lot of families are are that fortunate. And there are some families that we work with uh, who you know, it takes years to get the right diagnosis because even some family doctors, even today, still don't know that kids can have arthritis and they will tell a family, oh, it's growing pains. Oh, don't, no, don't worry about, no, it's just growing pains. You know, they're, they're just whining and complaining and they're, you, it, the kid's being lazy. So this is a, an, a like a, a diagnosis and a, a commentary from a, th- this is a what pediatrician? We, this is what we hear from families. So we, it's feedback we're getting from families that, that we work with who, once they get the diagnosis, they come to us for help, they come to us for support, and they share their story. And, and those are the comments that we sometimes hear. So the awareness is critical, not just for the public, but also the medical community. Exactly. Matthew, I want to give you the last word here before we take off. Um, it's You can do either one kilometer or five kilometer routes. How much are you going to walk on Sunday? Uh, I'm pretty sure since I am in good condition right now and I don't have a flare, uh, I should take, um, I don't want to take this for granted. So I will walk the five kilometers. Dude, I love you, man. You are, you are inspirational. You are a young man who's got a full life ahead of him. I know you're going to do great things. The fact that you're speaking up and sharing your story like this is uh, monstrous. So thank you. Okay, for, I really you. appreciate you coming in today. Now you've got a team, and I know you want to be the champion fundraiser as well. Tanya, how can people get on Matthew's team? They can go to walktofightarthritis.ca and search for Team Matthew. That's the best way to do it. Thank you for the the, the closing pitch, walktofightarthritis.ca. You made that a lot easier for me. You're so welcome. <laughs> it's happening this Sunday, June 4th, Cinnaboyne Park. Matthew Stepanovic, 13 years old. He is the walk hero, part of the walk hero family with his mom, Anna. And again, Tanya Masegers is here from the Arthritis Society. Your News, global news is up next. I'm Greg. He's Brett. She's Carolyn. Hey. We're all purple today. <laughs> is it uh, Easter? No, it just worked out that Celebrating way. summer, hey? We it are really all wearing is. purple shirts. Yes, we are indeed. Carolyn Klassen joins us now. Therapist Collect Connexus Counseling.ca is the website. I was calling you Carolyn Bergen in the news ah. in the news uh, room today. Carolyn Bergen Klassen's coming today. And I love when she comes because there's this idea uh, that, you know, we have, a, I think, a pretty good take on some stuff hmm. when we, when we you know, shoot from the hip. Yep. But you have this uh, different <laughs> place of coming from things that, that sets us straight. And uh, Brett and I were on the same page yesterday. That stunt, whatever it was, uh, that Kathy Griffin pulled in that photo shoot, the picture of her holding a severed head that looked like Donald Trump has gone viral, cost her her job. Mm-hmm. And both Brett and I looked at each other and said, that A, wasn't funny. And like, what what, what were we missing? It, it, was there something funny about this? And this whole idea of context is where we ended up going. So let's talk about the idea, first of all, of context and the idea that comedians are part of the commentary right. on on our society, but quite often they cross a line, they redraw a line. Is that okay for them to do that? 
Well, and do we want them doing that? I hadn't heard about it until I got the email from Brett, and then I went and looked for it because if I'm going to talk about it, I should see it. And I know that notice that today now they have sort of blurred out the part of the image so that it's less graphic appearing. Um, it was not a picture that I lingered on. Once I knew what it was, I got off of it because I was quite uncomfortable looking at it. I think um, people are realizing very clearly that she crossed the line. The tricky part of this is is that Kathy Griffin is um, has her notoriety because that's what she does as she crosses the line. I was reading an article in the Washington Post that says um, part of Kathy's charm is that she doesn't have a second, seven-second delay in her head. Um, she's offensive and that people buy tickets to watch her be offensive. And the Washington Post article has a number of things that she has said and done, which I would find inappropriate. And yet that's people like that and they buy tickets and they go see her. And so the way she stays on the cutting edge of her business to stay, you know, so that people are still buying her tickets and that people are still signing her up to do gigs at their club or on their TV show is by being, is by crossing the line. And this time she crossed way over it. But some of the examples when that, that uh, she's been known in the past, I would think that she's crossed the line before. And I don't even want to mention them on air because it's just, it's inappropriate. Yeah, she, uh, and the, 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 as far as I can tell, the original stunt was she just did this photo shoot with a photographer named uh, Tyler Shields. So TMZ shares the photo and uh, video, which I, I didn't uh, gain access to that yet, but I guess she proudly declared that Tyler and I are not afraid to do images that make noise. And then she actually, we do have the apology here. I'll just play this for you. It's 28 seconds long. I sincerely apologize. I am just now seeing the reaction of these images. I'm a comic. I crossed the line. I moved the line. Then I cross it. I went way too far. The image is too disturbing. I understand how it offends people. It wasn't funny. I get it. I've made a lot of mistakes in my career. I will continue. I asked your forgiveness, taking down the image, gonna ask the photographer to take down the image, and I begged for your forgiveness. I went too far, I made a mistake, and I was wrong. So let's just, let's just for example, say that, I mean, we don't know what the motivation was for it. As you pointed out, it's, this is her job, really, as mm -hmm. far as what society has demanded of her to push the envelope and, and go a little further than, than we are comfortable with. But let's say she had a, a message that she wanted to convey. Mm -hmm. It's clearly been lost. Yes. So if we just may add that to into broad, general, everyday sort of conversation, mm -hmm. how can we, I guess, what are some steps that we can take to try to avoid that, to make sure that what I am trying to tell to Greg in whatever form of communication I've chosen, that the message makes it through as I intended it to? Well, I think... One of the things that's happening in the United States is that they're off that that the whole culture is kind of turning to comics to kind of look at the social commentary and the political commentary and make sort of point out the ludicrousy of some of what's happening down there to use humor to point out something that's important. Uh, because often that gives a fresh perspective. And I think what you're talking about, Brett, is that sometimes we use humor in conversation with each other because uh, humor is kind of a soft way to make an important point. If I make a joke about something in a way that, but how you've hurt me, but I can kind of introduce it in kind of a jokey way, it's quite possible you'll be able to hear it better than if I come down hard and say, hey, dude, you were really offensive there and that is not okay. You're much likely to get defensive. And so humor can be a way to... Um, as, a, as a strategy to let something that you want to say to make your point, to let it into the sink into the other person in a way that's more acceptable. 
I think the challenge is, is that often when you use humor to make a serious point, uh, it can hurt. And then it's a little bit tricky because it's not funny, but it's supposed to be funny. And when you're in a personal relationship, if a person says something really offensive and then comes back right after and says, hey, but I was just kidding, it, that's hard because, hey, dude, that didn't sound like you were kidding. It didn't feel like you were kidding. It actually hurt in a not funny way. But now you haven't, you don't have permission to process that in a way that allows the, replace, the relationship to stay connected or intact. We're getting feedback from our listeners here. And uh, this text message at 780-6868, this is from Peter. Even if it makes us uncomfortable, it is the norm to shock people now. Even if we don't like him, that being Trump, we live in the world of ISIS and this really happens. Sorry, not funny. Thanks for the great show. That was my first thinking, too, is when I have seen pictures where it's not a fake head um, and I can't stand to look at those and I don't think it's funny. Um, I have gone to comedy shows and have written a letter to the club after to say child abuse is not funny. I just think there are some topics that are not funny. We do not make fun of some things. I think there's some things... That should not, humor just doesn't belong. One more question here. Sorry, Brett, not to interrupt you. It says, what about the impact on Trump's kids and and those around him when when we see something like that? I mean, uh, once again, regardless of how you may feel about him as a president, he's a a father and a grandfather. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, uh, yes, that would be offensive. If my children saw a picture of me like that, I would be very concerned about how it would affect them. And so... Um, that was part of what uh, I believe Chelsea Clinton um, posted something very strongly that this was not appropriate, right? I'm, I suspect she's not a huge supporter of Trump, but she is an advocate for his children to say, let's let's be conscious and let's be fair and let's make sure that we protect people who, you know, just by birth, by virtue of their biology, they didn't, you know, his, his 11-year-old son didn't pick this. Uh, how do we take care of him? Because I think we have an obligation as society to do that. Uh, and just on the subject of Trump, uh, former President Barack Obama saying the Trump administration is joining, quote, a small handful of nations that reject the future, end quote, with the climate pact withdrawal. President Trump is speaking right now, saying the Americans will withdraw from the climate deal. We're going to pause and have a look at our forecast and continue our conversation about this Kathy Griffin brouhaha, this stunt that she pulled that blew up in her face and has people on both sides of the political spectrum pointing the finger at her, saying that she's gone too far. She has apologized. At first I, I at first I bought it, and now after listening to it, I'm not sure what I think about it. And uh, maybe I'm just being too judgy about a celebrity who really in the grand scheme doesn't matter. We're going to carry on our chat with Carolyn Clausen, who is a counselor with connexuscounseling.ca. And uh, your forecast is up next. Carolyn Clausen is here for her weekly visit with us. She is a therapist with Connexus Counseling, the website, connexuscounseling.ca. She has a wonderful blog there as well. And we are using the, the Kathy Griffin stunt as a springboard for our conversation. In case you're not familiar with it, she was photographed holding a mat, looked like a bloodied mask of Donald Trump. And she essentially it was like she was posing with his severed head in an ISIS-style photograph. She has made a career of being a, uh, an offensive comedian and doing offensive things. And Carolyn pointed out this a valid point that isn't this sort of what we have demanded of her over the years, We or at least reward her. We, we reward her. Uh, when she does this stuff, but now everybody is saying that she's gone 
a little bit too far. She apologized for it. She has taken the picture down. She asked her photographer to take it down. And you heard the apology, Carolyn. Well, you know what? Let me just play the apology again. It's under 30 seconds. I sincerely apologize. I am just now seeing the reaction of these images. I'm a comic. I crossed the line. I moved the line. Then I cross it. I went way too far. The image is too disturbing. I understand how it offends people. It wasn't funny. I get it. I've made a lot of mistakes in my career. I will continue. I asked your forgiveness, taking down the image, gonna ask the photographer to take down the image, and I beg for your forgiveness. I went too far, I made a mistake, and I was wrong. What do you think of that, Carolyn? Well, if you didn't know a little bit about her and her history, it sounds fabulous. It has a lot of good components of what an apology is. She owns it, she's just straight up. I messed up, I goofed, it was my mistake. She keeps it simple and real. She doesn't get defensive and start explaining it away, explaining how it's not really her fault. Um, She understood how offensive it was. She had some empathy for those of us who had to see that picture, and she demonstrated some understanding of the impact. However, the fourth component of a good apology is to work to make it right. And what's interesting is when I read that Washington Post article, she has been fired and dismissed and lost contracts several times before for crossing the line. And it doesn't seem like... The, the, the past behavior has shown that um, she's going to go on to be to be offensive again and cross the line and um, sort of rec- she's going to risk being overly offensive at the because it's more important to her to push the envelope than to not push it. And so likely she's going to continue. And so that's part of what makes that apology feel hollow is we know who she is. We know what she's done in the past. We know how she's responded to her goose in the past. She doesn't work to make it right and to not do it again. She will She will do it again. Well, here's some listener feedback on that and mm-hmm. a supplemental sort of comment slash question. Kathy Griffin is merely apologizing in response to the negative feedback. Would she be sorry if she hadn't elicited such a reaction? This is akin to the politician who apologizes for getting caught engaging in impropriety. Would he be truly sorry if he wasn't caught? Well, I guess I would like to give Kathy Griffin the benefit of the doubt on this. I think we all have done something and then not realized until we've gotten the feedback that what we did was hurtful or offensive. Sometimes you need to see the feedback of others to know that you've crossed the line um, and that you have something to apologize for. She often pushes the line. She does that. uh, And often it's accepted. This time it so clearly wasn't because she didn't just push against it. She went far beyond it. But you don't always know that until you get the feedback from others. And so, yeah, I suspect that what a lot of what she's trying to do is figure out how to manage her image in the long run. But I think part of this too might be, I didn't know what I did until I saw people's reaction. And then once I saw people's perspective, then I got, and then I, and then I did become sorry because I could see how people were offended and I didn't know it was going to be so offensive. Now for the record, I, I just want to point out, and I don't want to speak for either Greg or Carolyn on this. The, the, the Kathy Griffin thing was just sort of meant to be a, a springboard. Like I, she did, Kathy Griffin did something stupid and that doesn't surprise me in the least. And, and <laughs> I'm not, I don't have any outrage. I, I, I raised, certainly raised raised an eyebrow about it and thought, well, that's probably not good. And I kind of like that both the left and right are sort of telling her, no, this is a little too far. Mm -hmm. But what I would made me curious about it is when you do something, we all do things that are bad. Part uh, of being human. Yeah. What do you, when you really screw up, if if I wrong Greg somehow in a way that, oh, I... Regardless of whether my actions were intentional, um, 
and not not intentional in the sense that I intended to hurt him, but I did something deliberate, or if it was just an accidental goof, like I'm not yep. thinking. How do I, I guess, what is the first step I should be taking to try to make it right? Well, I think we have to recognize that apologies are difficult because often when people, well, I think part of what makes apologies difficult is often it's hard to say I made a mistake because we often feel in our heads it's not about I made a mistake, but I actually am a mistake. And that's really hard to admit. So it takes a lot of courage to apologize. What I like people to remind people about is that when they goof up and they circle back and they make it right, it can actually often strengthen their relationship. And when you go back to say you're important enough that I'm willing to be uncomfortable, I'm willing to find out how this impacted on you, I'm willing to own it, I'm willing to have an uncomfortable conversation where we focus and spend time on how I screwed up, that's not easy for anybody to do. And when you tell the other person, you're important enough to me that I'm willing to have this uncomfortable conversation, it actually makes a difference and it can strengthen the relationship. If you goofed up really bad, Brett, you might have to recognize that it would require more than one conversation. And that it might mean that Greg would have to come back to you and say, you know, there's another part of this that I thought of that was hard. And and to hold another person's discomfort that you have created is a really hard thing for us all to do. But if we are able to do that, we are wired for connection, which is something I always say, and it repairs the connection. And uh, I have an experience that I've written about on my blog in the past where um, I went to a coffee shop and they got my order wrong. And I'm not a person that is a complainer, but I dared to say this actually isn't what I ordered. And so part of it, what happened was the person training didn't know what they were doing. And so it took a really long time and it took a long time to do the repair drink. But they, but in the end they gave me both drinks and then they gave me a coupon that said, have a free drink on us next time you come by. Cause we're sorry that we didn't give you the kind of service you deserve. And in the end, that mistake actually strengthened my relationship with that coffee company because they were empathic towards me. They understood me. They valued me. They could see my hurt. They tried to make it right. And so their mistake was an opportunity for them to strengthen their relationship with me. And it wasn't damaged. It was stronger. Yeah, those opportunities, if you choose to engage in them, can be extremely powerful, very strengthening in terms of any sort of relationship, whether it be a personal relationship or a business one. Two very contrasting opinions on what we've been talking about here, and maybe we can wrap it up on that. Freedom of speech is freedom of speech. You can make fun of death. You can make fun of anything. If people don't like you because of your speech, it's your fault for raising those eyebrows. Don't make a mountain of a molehill. And then on the other side... Kathy Griffin is a disgusting person and deserves all the backlash that she will get. You don't get much polar opposite than those two comments, do no. you? <laughs> so that also highlights the divide that we have, not only in terms of taste and what is acceptable and what should be said, what should not be said, but also the political divide, the the contrast uh, that we have uh, in terms of opinion uh, in society right now. And we're feeling more and more comfortable to express those things. One, and I guess I would say that I think it's important for us to be empathic, to recognize that um, each of those opinions is very different, but how can one side understand the position of the other side? And as we can see and have empathy for the other person's side or the other position's side, then we're able to draw closer. We're able to actually have a conversation. If we're so polar opposite that we can't have a conversation, that's where the divisiveness only increases. And that's when our world gets further and further into darkness and worse and worse trouble. What do you do if you've made a mistake, you've apologized, the other person hasn't forgiven? What what am I supposed to do in that while I'm waiting for, hopefully, what is forgiveness? Well, I think it's important to recognize that apologizing and being forgiven are two different steps. 
Uh, I think it's important to own um, the uh, movie The Shack, which came out a couple of months ago. When he talks about forgiveness, it talks about forgiveness is taking your hands off of the other person's throat, right? It's letting go. Um, that's what forgiveness does for the person who is doing the forgiving. You don't, you don't need the other person to even say, I'm sorry, to do the forgiving, but it frees your hands up then to go out and do all sorts of things, right? Um, when you're not forgiving somebody, it sort of keeps you in a space of being troubled internally, I think. And the challenge is how to let go of that debt, which often can't be collected. Uh, but when you're asking, uh, expressing an apology, you may or may not get forgiveness. And I think that you have to recognize that the other person can choose and they have to make that choice. Um, and that to demand it, then if you if you demand it and it's not freely, then it's not authentic. There are genuinely relationships that are irreparable. For sure. Yes. And I think even once you recognize where you might say, I forgive you, but the consequences of your behavior mean I won't trust you in the same way, that forgiveness doesn't mean you go back to where it used to be. Forgiveness and healthy boundaries aren't the same. Carolyn Claussen is a therapist with Conexus Counseling, the website, conexuscounseling.ca. She actually has a blog post, FAQs, about apologizing. It goes back a couple of years, but it's there. If you want the link, just shoot me or Greg an email, brett at cjob.com, gmac at cjob.com. Global News at 3 o'clock is coming up next. 3.07, just about time to head home for a lot of you. A lot of you, this is the first day of the work week, so we head into a weekend, so... I want to thank everyone who works the odd hours, frontline workers, retailer workers, everyone that works odd shifts so that we can stay safe and do the things we like to do when we're not at work. Brett McGarry, Greg Mackling with you through until 4 o'clock. Then it's Matt and Julie Richard Cloutier is on assignment this week. He'll be back on Monday, I believe. Uh, Matt and Julie will slide in here in about a half an hour or so to let us know what they have planned between 4 and 7 on the news. Keep it locked here for latest news, weather, sports, financial information, and entertainment. Brett Gary. What are you? I am Diana of Themyscira, daughter of Hippolyta. In the name of all that is good, your wrath upon this world is over. Yep, that's not going to work. Please put the sword down. It doesn't go with the outfit. At all. Brett McGarry, you're one of the couch potatoes. Last night you saw Wonder Woman. Yes, I was. A, got to go check out Wonder Woman at St. Vitale. It opens tonight. Technically it opens tomorrow, but they always have these sort of Thursday night, what they call special screenings. And I got to go see Wonder Woman. And I really, really enjoyed it. It's currently at 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yesterday it was at 96. So it's gone down just a little bit, but I still think that 92 is a solid uh, win for DC, for Warner Brothers, and just for the fact that finally a superhero movie featuring one of the oldest comic book heroes there is. Uh, Wonder Woman has been adored by comic book readers for eight decades so the fact that her, this is now her first film while Batman's been on the big screen and the little screen since the 60s, Superman's had a whole bunch of movies. It it doesn't seem, I know, I mean, I know Wonder Woman had the television show and in the, in the, with was that the 60s or 70s? It would Carter. have been the 70s with Linda Carter, I believe, yeah. as Wonder Woman. That's right. 
So, I mean, they've been trying to the get this. The list is short. The bottom line is the list is short. Yeah. And uh, there have been. Now, I've granted, Catwoman was a terrible film. And there was another film called Electra that Marvel did, which featured Jennifer Garner in the, the main role. But neither of those movies did well. But that's because they were bad movies. Wonder Woman is a great movie. And it's, it's anchored by a sensational performance from uh, Israeli actor, actress Gal Gadot who uh, I will admit I wasn't all that keen on her when they first picked Wonder Woman. And I feel sort of bad about that because I just thought, oh, she was in Fast and Furious. Isn't she too, she's so like, she looks, t- I thought she looked too frail. And uh, Interesting. And, I, and I, 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 I say that because I want to, I want to recant on that. Because it does, and I, I don't know where I'm going with this. I think what I'm trying to say, it's hard to fall on the sword publicly, Greg. I'm just thinking of what Carolyn was saying. It's hard to say, I admit it, I'm to You're admit wrong. that you made a mistake. But yeah. my first reaction was, she looks so frail. She's so tiny. And I would have said that about a guy. Like when I first heard Christian Bale was going to be Batman, I thought, the machinist? The guy who played the machinist is going to be Batman? How about when Michael Keaton was announced he was going to play Batman. He wouldn't have been anyone's first choice if you would have asked for random mm-hmm. public suggestions. Michael Keaton might have been the, like not mentioned at all. So th- this is not exclusive to uh, male or female actors. This is just something that you felt in terms of uh, the now Wonder Woman. Yeah, and she was, I mean, Gal Gadot was great in Fast and Furious, but I think my initial reaction was, oh, they just picked her because she's super hot. Because she's a gorgeous woman, but I, there were other actresses that I had in mind that I thought she would be great because she already has the physicality, and there are actresses who had ex, uh, backgrounds in martial arts, and I think I wanted, I think I just was pulling for other actresses. But in the end, they made the right choice. She bulked up a little, and uh, she's wonderful. Not, and that's no pun intended on that. It was I, I'm not saying Wonder Woman is wonderful. You're going to see that a lot, I'm sure. I didn't mean to do that, but it was just, it was a good time at the movies, unlike the previous DC films. Did you see Batman versus Superman? No, on your recommendation, I did not see it. It's a tough go. It's I not saved a fun my movie. time. It's not a fun movie. She was actually the best part of that movie. They introduced Wonder Woman in that film. She was easily the best part of it. Uh, but as far as this movie is concerned, it's uh, maybe too long. That, that, that's complaint number one. They could have shaved off about 20 minutes. It's two hours, 20 minutes. And complaint two, and this is really nitpicky, is that it just felt a little clumsy at points. It's not a perfect film, but it's a, I really enjoyed it. And I also liked that not once did I ever feel like the women on display were sexualized in any way. Gratuitous. They, yeah, they were sexy, right? but not sexual. Like uh, if you watch... When Captain America or Thor, when they those guys take their shirts off, or Star-Lord, Chris Pratt, they're taking their shirts off only for the purposes of engaging a certain portion of the audience. And that's fine. I don't have a complaint with that. But in this case, you know, I think it was important that they, they did it the way that they did it, where, yes, she's wearing a skimpy outfit, but she wasn't wearing a skimpy outfit to look hot. As whereas that's how often the case in comic books, she was just a, a commanding, dominating warrior. Two quick questions: uh, suitable for kids? Yes, I think so. I mean, it, there is some violence, so I don't know that I would say the youngest of kids because there is some some violent stuff. Uh, 
it's set in World War One, so you do see the horrors of world wars in the context of a movie that is family friendly. You don't see any hideous gore or anything like that. Kathy Griffin is not involved in the production in any way. <laughs> Sorry to reach back to that. And uh, the other question, could this mark a turning point? Marvel has been absolutely crushing it mm. at the box office with their superhero movies. Could this mark a decided change in that trend? Not that Marvel will stop making good superhero movies, but could DC be maybe on their way to, to making some better ones? Uh, I don't think so. Marvel has... They have faltered very seldom as they've marched along with this Marvel Cinematic Universe. They've had a very, they've had a detailed plan on the wall for years as, as to where they were going to go. And we're going to drop this movie in here and drop this movie here. And it's all going to point to this particular storyline, which is coming. So I have no lack of confidence in Marvel's ability to continue to make great films. I just think now that DC has hopefully figured it out that they can't they don't have to be sad and depressing to be the anti-marvel. They don't have cuz that's what they tried to do. Well, Marvel's they they make their movies a little bit lighter. So DC tried to be darker with Batman versus Superman and it didn't work. As a result, I didn't even bother going to see Suicide Squad because that film also got terrible reviews. I still want to see it eventually just because the completist in me needs to to see it. But Wonder Woman was fun, and I, I've seen a lot of comparisons to Christopher Reeve. She kind of brings, uh, mm. at least in this particular version of her story, where she's just come to the the real world off of her Amazon island for the first time. She's got this, she's sort of naive and and fresh, and she has very similar energy to Christopher Reeve, that kind of, aw shucks, sort of charisma. Were those the last good DC movies? I know there's been the odd good Batman here and there, but very dark. But Superman, the first iteration with Christopher Reeve, certainly was not dark in any way. It was very uplifting. It was very inspirational, I thought. Uh, so is this, a, is this a, a nice return maybe to that? Although it, it is pretty dark in terms of how it's shot. It's certainly not lollipops and sunshine. Uh, I, well, it's... It, it did sort of remind me of that. It was nice to see a, a DC Comics hero who is not all doom and gloom, who isn't constantly brooding. That's not a knock against Batman. That's Batman's thing. He's always been dark and brooding. He's dark. Yeah, he's he's he does what he does because his parents were killed in a back uh, alley. Dark Knight? Mm, yeah. You were warned. <laughs> yeah, that's his thing. I expect that from Batman. Superman should be fun. He's happy. He, uh, he's the guy who says things like, statistically speaking, flying is still the safest way to travel. That's fun. The current Superman is not fun, although I do like the actor, Henry Cavill, so hopefully they give him some more fun stuff to do. Lighten up, Marvel. Lighten up. 316 on 680 CJOB. Traffic and weather next. And we need to give some stuff away. We have tickets. It's on this Friday. That's tomorrow, June 2nd. Tomorrow. To July 9th, under the big top at Keniston and Sterling Lion. And for today's question, it's actually a revisit because I screwed it up the first time. So I want to get mean? it right. What do you mean? Well, I'll, I'll pose the question at 204-780-6868. Get ready to call. What is the first Cirque du Soleil show in Las Vegas and where is it? 
You are hard on yourself, man. 204-780-6868 is the number to call. The first time we did this... Months ago! Yeah, I had given Fortier the wrong answer. I had identified the wrong hotel. And a listener was quite adamant with him, I believe, Mm -hmm. if story... And then he had to look it up and realized... Hey, you're wrong, man. But we made it right. We made I know. it no right one, with that customer. Yeah, no one got hosed out of their tickets. That's right. But uh, anyway. Boy, you are hard on yourself. So I just thought Gary. we'd play this game again and see mm-hmm. what happens. And at 204-780-6868, Jeff Forte will look for an answer. The winner will go see Cirque du Soleil, Curio's Cabinet of Curiosities. I'm going tomorrow night. I believe you said you might be there as well. I confirmed my attendance yesterday. I oh, shall yes. be there. Right on, man. It's going to be an exciting show. I love Cirque du Soleil. They was really cool when they came through at uh, now Bell MTS Place for Toruk, the first flight, the Avatar-themed show, but I, I, th- I think I'm more excited for this one just because it... I don't know that I've ever actually been under a big top. And the, uh, the acrobatics are supposed to be spectacular. Toruk was more about the story and the atmosphere and what they managed to do with that large space versus the acrobatics, yeah. which were very good, but this is supposed to be gigantic in that fashion. It is 322. We're going to have a quick look at your forecast in two minutes. Many have tried to come up with soliloquies for our relationship. Bob and Doug McKenzie's not one that comes up very often. Okay. <laughs> crank it up. Oh, that's me. I got to crank it up. Hey, welcome to Canadian Corner to Great White North. And look at this. I'm Bob McKenzie. And this is my brother, Doug. And uh, this is Doug's new beer bottle. Look. Oh, take off, eh? <laughs> it's got a baby bottle. Okay, oh, no, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole like here. And I don't want to take you all with me. Uh, take off, you hosers. Bob and Doug McKenzie are coming back to the Great White North. Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas, the SCTV stars who brought the Canadian brothers into millions of homes during the 1980s, are reuniting for a special benefit concert July 18th. Where else? In Toronto. The concert Takeoff A is being presented by the Second City and Thomas in January. Thomas's nephew, Jake, severed his spinal cord in a snowmobiling accident. Proceeds from the concert will go to his recovery and to Spinal Cord Injury Ontario, which provides support to those who have suffered life-altering spinal injuries. To set up our next segment, I'm going to play a song I never even thought I'd play on 680 CJOB. It's a song that I used to like in 1996. the sneaker pimps spin spin sugar <laughs> i am uh dizzy just from listening to that do you remember this uh, I, I, it like it reminds me of when you used to yell into the fan and then with the blades going and you would yell into the fan <laughs> and it would start modulating your voice like this yep that's what it reminds me of okay spin, would, spin sugar. yeah this is uh from my nightclub days i'm not sure if this would have been from your it, how if you were still in your nightclub days around then, Greg. But uh, the reason mm-hmm. I play this song, Spin Spin Sugar, is because I have in my hand a fidget spinner. Yes, I caved in and I bought a fidget spinner because I'm walking through the mall today, walk to work. There's a young woman setting up a kiosk between Bootlegger and Flight Center. I think they previously sold like Proactive or I don't know what it was. Something was there. 
Well, she was loading up all these fidget spinners. So Greg and I went over and talked to her. Her name is Tina Song. She's an employee there. I don't believe she is the owner. Uh, it's a place called Spin Revolution. It's just down by the south side of Polo Park between Bootlegger and Flight Center. We just had a quick chat on Greg's. Uh, Greg recorded it using his phone. Yeah, this actually the spinner is invented in 1990s. And uh, in 1970, in 2017, like this year, it becomes very popular suddenly. And uh, every kid wants one. And uh, this is a good toy for release our stress. And it's also good for some children who has ADHD. And uh, they cannot focus on one activity for a long time. So this is a good toy for helping them concentrate and uh, focus. Why has it just caught on now? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Just maybe like some children play with it and they bring it to school or with friends in parties and they see this is a very fancy toy so people have like other children have one so I also lost one maybe that's the reason have you ever played with a fidget cube these other toys no, that are out there I've heard about that but I never seen that because the, 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 the fidget cube, I saw those a few months ago, and then I saw these. These have, have picked up, I think, a lot more. I've seen people actually sitting at kiosks throughout the mall, working and playing with these. Yeah. Uh, so I think your timing is really cool. What uh, makes a good fidget spinner? The berry in the center is very smooth, and uh, the materials like uh, building the spinner is very fancy. Uh, the color is fancy, the shape is fancy, and um, the feeling you play, you play with it is like you're flying. <laughs> well, so. does a heavy one make a better a better toy? The heavier, the better. The better the spinner. Actually, the heavier one. Uh, maybe spin for a shorter time and uh, the lighter one like the plastic one because their weight is light so they can spin for a longer time but for the adults for most of the adults they like the heavier ones and uh, the children they like the happy face like over there the glow in the dark they have lighter and the color is colorful well like both of these guys have ones in their hand are these guys did you guys pick these up from here where did you get those yeah? yeah, there's a lot of shops who are selling this right now. Okay. All right. Well, hey, Tina, thanks for, <laughs> for telling. And how much is this one? This is $29.95, the new rubber. What do you think, Greg? Should I get one of these? I don't think you're going to escape without getting one. So <laughs> okay. you might as well take the plunge. Okay. All right. Sorry, T- I took it. I got it now. Tina Song is who we were speaking to over at Spin Revolution, a little kiosk in Polo Park. They're on the south side between Bootlegger and Flight Center, selling nothing but fidget spinners, and they have all kinds of them. Some of them, I think, light up. I'm not entirely sure about that, but all sorts of different colors. And if you you, you can see mine, I put a picture of or a video of me spinning it on my Instagram. The, mm. On the Instagram, you can mm-hmm. follow me on the Instagram. And Julie Buckingham and Matt Cardi, they're actually doing something on fidget spinners as well, unrelated to what we were doing. Just happy coincidence. They're going to be doing that, I think, after the 6 o'clock hour. They'll be in to tell us a little bit more. They're checking in with Global National. Apparently, fidget spinners might not be all that great for kids with ADHD. So we'll ask them about that when they come in in a few moments here. I was actually wondering if it might actually create it. Yeah, because I, I like, I love the fidget toys. And uh, it's actually been, I've been sort of 
using it throughout the show today. I, I find it somewhat relaxing. Well, it's got that little vibration to it mm-hmm. as it's spinning, and it is kind of calming. How would you describe that to someone who's wondering, what is a fidget spinner? I would call it, uh, just imagine a ball bearing, like you might find, we're already starting with something innocuous, something that a lot of people may have never seen, but a a bearing that you might see in a roller skate wheel or in a a skateboard wheel with a couple of caps on it. And then it's just basically, this one that you have looks... Sort of like a, a rim that you might see on a on a fancy sports car. It's about an inch and a half, two inches in diameter. Yeah, that, or it looks like a throwing star. Or a Chinese throwing star, or absolutely. A buzzsaw. Buzzsaw blade, skill saw. Imagine a skill saw blade that's about an inch and a half across, and you hold it in between your forefinger and your thumb, and it's got a bearing in the middle so that thing can spin around inside the cavity that you've created with those two fingers. And I might, uh, you heard the price. Mine was, I think, twenty nine ninety five. Yeah, I know Fortier is waiting for his. He ordered one online, paid $6, and he still doesn't have it. That's what you get when you it's buy con- stuff online. It's in a container ship halfway across the Pacific, buddy. <laughs> you might never get that thing. <laughs> I think Jeff Braun said he ordered one too, but he ordered it online, so you'll probably see it in August. We ordered one online. Got, we got it like, on, off Amazon. It got it like four days. It was really? in the mailbox longer than it was uh, in, in en route. Well, what site did you get yours from, Jeff? Amazon. You picked the wrong retailer there, buddy. <laughs> I sure did. I didn't. I didn't read the the small print. Yeah, so. you got to hang out with uh, my kids more often. They're good. They're good shoppers. So, Julie Buckingham and Matt Cardi are going to tell us what's coming up on the news right after we check traffic. And there has been oh crash southbound on the Midtown Bridge. We'll get more details on that. Oh boy! In two minutes. It is 29 degrees at 680 CJOB. Weather is for the Club Region Event Center presenting the off-Broadway hit Dixie's Tupperware Party. Or Tupperware Perry, as it says in our in, uh, the script that Jeff Forte typed up. Come on, Jeff. My bad. <laughs> Step up your game, Forte. <laughs> Just throwing them right under the bus. Good teamwork. <laughs> uh, so Dixie's Tupperware Party is June 9th. Tickets available through Ticketmaster. Visit casinos at Winnipeg.com for details. How can you get mad at Jeff? He's like the most delightful guy in our building. Yeah, you can. Always smiling. Always smiling. He's a happy, happy guy. Thank you, Jeff, for your positivity. Jeff Fafa, as I like to call him. Why Jeff Fafa? Jeff Fafa? Mm-hmm. Why is that? Where's the Fafa come from? <laughs> it's from Peanut and Jeff Dunham. The ventriloquist. Oh. Peanut, the the whatever he is. And it's Jeff F. His last name is Forche. Jeff Dunham. But in this case, it's Jeff Forche and Jeff Fafa. Fa. Okay. You a Dunham fan? No. Yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> I didn't think he was your cup of tea. No. But sorry. Matt Cardi looks a lot like Peanut. I don't know where this is just... coming from. No, he does not. <laughs> Thank you, Greg. Matt Cardi's one of the most it's handsome all, guys all in, in the eyes. He does not look like a like a marionette puppet or whatever <laughs> Thank ventriloquist you. Except act. he turns his head and he opens his mouth and that's exactly what Peanut does and he has Peanut's eyes. It's, it's remarkable. Hang on a second. Peanut? Peanut with the purple skin and the big red lips and the green hair? Yes. This, this is what I've been dealing with okay, all It's week. the eyes and then he turns his head like Peanut does and he opens his mouth. Please be very careful with your enunciation as you're approaching this <laughs> topic, Okay. I don't know what you're talking about. We're talking about peanut. Thank you, fellas. Thank you. Perfect.
what's happening between four and seven. I know you two all have a ton of information for us, but but what specifically should we well, be allow. salivating over in anticipation? Well, uh, lots of things ho- happening very important with the city next week, right? And so the, the union members there of QP500 are sort of deciding on a contract, and if they reject that contract, then they have a legal strike mandate. So we're going to get the update and see where things are. There was a little bit of a mix-up this morning uh, when it comes to the United Firefighters Association, and one of their members being asked to do the work of a QP500 member. Uh, We'll explain what happened there, and then we'll get an idea of what's happening uh, next week and where we go from there, uh, if it's accepted or if it's rejected. Whose word is that, mix-up? Uh, it's the city's word. City's word. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. think there's more to it than that. Yeah. Well, we'll hear from uh, Alex Forrest, the city, and the workers' union. So we've got the trifecta right off we've the got top all the of the show. covered. Yes. Uh, Rachel, Monday we'll be popping by to talk Manitoba Marathon. Uh, there was the report out from Statistics Canada that says prairie, prairie dads and prairie men maybe not doing as much around the Don't house. look at me like that. I do lots around the house. So we'll discuss that. We have a, a stay-at-home dad on. See, I went with a stay-at-home dad. And he also used to run a dad's group. So we'll get his take on some of that. You know, some of my friends, they, it's the dad's. The dad does everything and still is not, it's not good enough. Does all the laundry, does all the, the cooking, <laughs> and it's not good enough. So I well, say that this it's not bearing it out in the statistics, apparently. The statistics are poppycock. <laughs> I <laughs> well, we're paying for those statistics because they're from Statistics Canada, but uh, we'll we'll discuss that a little bit more. So the new report on screen time and how much little ones under five should be watching uh, the tube or playing none, on those none, tablets. None, none. So we'll uh, have a, a parenting expert and the creator of WeWelcome.ca on Alan Cross on Sgt. Pepper and the other Canadian um, connection to that album. And is it it's as strong? A, is it as strong as the one of the story we? told today stronger actually <laughs> sorry sorry and i know you were talking fidget Lies. spinners <laughs> it's not a lie fidget spinners and they could be banned in some schools and experts um not really on board with that they're actually effective for anything matt I think, the they cre- I think they down. create. I really enjoy how you went out and bought one, Brett. Can we keep this in the newsroom? And- <laughs> oh, I don't know. I actually was debating. Do I bring it home or do I leave it here? My kids were like, we're not allowed to take them to school. Uh, you're not allowed to take <laughs> well, them see, to school. And you know what? At my son's school, uh, high school, they actually did, did like the... <laughs> Did you so just drop it? <laughs> no. I, oh, your headphones. I was spinning it and I they, dropped my headphones. They digitally printed them at his high school, that's like that cool. 3D printer, and then they sold them. Oh. So that school's clearly on board. We'll Julie see. Buckingham, Matt Cardi, thank you so much. Oh, congratulations to Jasmine Perdonic. Perdonic? Perdonic. Thank you so much, uh, Jeff Forte, giving me the, the right pronunciation through the, the glass. You made up for your earlier mistake. Jasmine Perdonic, you are going to see Cabinet of curiosities Cirque du Soleil curios because the question that I asked was where was the first uh, Cirque show in Las Vegas and what is it so the what is mystere is what it was called and where is it it's at Treasure Island I originally said when I first asked the you question, said Mirage right I said the Mirage so way to go Jasmine that's all the time we have I'm Brett he's Greg Jeff's in Master Control thanks to listening uh, to Macklin and McGarry on 680 CJOB